Welcome again to Prairie View. We're happy that you're here this morning. I kind of jokingly had someone tell me this morning or ask me this morning, hey, you know, with it being a holiday weekend, with attendance probably being a little bit down, people traveling, people at the race, have you ever thought about on a weekend like this kind of just breaking out one of those old sermons you preached three or four years ago, nobody's going to remember it anyway, and just preaching that and kind of taking the week off and kind of mailing it in. And for the record, I will say that I have never done that. Uh, and I don't plan on doing that because I think any time people gather in the church, you deserve a fresh sermon. So that's what we're going to do this morning. But then on top of that, I think holiday weekends actually give preachers a unique opportunity uh, to preach about things that might not be preached about otherwise. Uh, holiday weekends tend to lend themselves well to topical or standalone sermons. Because after all, a wise preacher probably doesn't want to start something new or in something old on a weekend when a lot of people will be gone. Or if your church is in Indiana, at the Speedway. So as I tinkered with the preaching calendar this year, and as I realized that I was going to end up preaching on Memorial Day weekend, I started thinking about standalone sermons. And I found myself drawn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther is... Something that might be a little bit familiar to many of us, but I'll be the first to admit that I've never dedicated an entire lesson or an entire sermon to the book of Esther. But as I read it this week and as I prepared this week, one thing became abundantly clear to me. And what became clear to me is that the best thing a preacher can do when it comes to the book of Esther is to simply get out of the way and let the story do its work. So that's what we're going to do today. I hope that we can simply read this story and see the wisdom and possibly even find the comfort in this story that God offers to his people. So open up to Esther chapter one. Feel free to use our Bibles here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible with you if you don't own one. But before we get into the book of Esther, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to take communion, take an offering, sing songs, pray, and hear from your word. Uh, Again, these things might not seem all that exciting to everyone in the world. Uh, These things might not sound all that romantic or all that impressive uh, to many in this world, including us. We might be tempted sometimes to find them routine or rote or boring. But Father, I pray that as we open your word this morning, as we read this truly incredible story, uh, that we would be moved by it, impacted by it, quite frankly, amazed by it, because it truly is an amazing story. And I pray that we can get something out of this story uh, that would be meaningful to each of us, uh, that the wisdom that you bestow through these words, the lessons that you teach us through these words, uh, we would put into practice. And Father, thank you for your Son, the one who brings us all here, the one who unites us all here, the one by whose blood and by whose body we are called your children. Father, we are grateful that we can call you Father. And that did not come easily. That did not come cheaply. It came at the price of your Son's death. And so, Father, I pray that we would remember that week in and week out, and that we would celebrate and glorify you for the resurrection. We love you, we praise you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, as we open the book of Esther, we find ourselves in the kingdom of Persia, somewhere around 480 A.D. At this point, the Babylonians are long gone. King Cyrus of Persia got rid of them a while back. Those events are recorded in the book of Daniel, if you're ever curious. And Cyrus allowed the Jews, taken to Babylon against their will, to go home to Jerusalem. This story likely takes place not long after the temple is rebuilt in the book of Ezra, and not long before the walls are rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah. But not every Jewish person in Babylon chose to go back to Jerusalem when they had the opportunity. Those Jews who stayed behind are often referred to as the diaspora, a word meaning scattered through. And among these Jews still scattered through the Persian capital of Susa, we find our two main characters, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther are cousins. Esther's parents were not around, so Mordecai took her in and raised her as a daughter. But at this time, the more significant news is the juicy palace gossip going around. You see, a scandal has occurred, and the current king, King Ahasuerus, a.k.a. King Xerxes, is left with egg on his face. Xerxes held a party at the palace. And these parties often went on for days and weeks. There were no limits at these feasts. The food was abundant and the wine flowed like water. But then one day Xerxes demanded that his wife, Queen Vashti, make an appearance. But instead of doing as she was told, the queen stood him up. This brought great embarrassment and great shame to Xerxes. So much so that he deposed Queen Vashti and started looking for a new queen to take her place. We don't know for sure, but there's some evidence to suggest that Vashti may have even been killed for her offense. But all we can say with certainty is that her throne is now empty. So naturally, Xerxes holds an ancient version of The Bachelor. Beautiful young women from across Persia compete for Xerxes' love and compete for Xerxes' vacant crown, rather Vashti's vacant crown. And guess who competes? Our friend Esther. And guess who wins? Against all odds, it's Esther. But there's one problem, and that's Esther's secret. You see, Esther didn't disclose the fact that she is a Jew. At Mordecai's insistence, she kept this quiet during the competition. It's possible that she wouldn't have been chosen if Xerxes knew the truth. Now, some people criticize Mordecai and Esther for concealing her identity. Surely Esther had to compromise her Jewish beliefs and her Jewish practices to gain that position, to become queen. But the truth is that we don't know for sure what Mordecai and Esther's inner motivations were. We're not sure what different ethical or religious commitments Esther had to sacrifice to become queen. All the story focuses on is that Esther is where she is now. Esther wears the crown. But then soon after Esther ascends the throne, Mordecai has a moment of glory himself. As he's sitting by the king's gate, he overhears two servants 
planning to assassinate Xerxes. Mordecai foils the plot and potentially saves the king's life. Mordecai's good deed is written down in the king's records. But other than that, Mordecai is never truly rewarded. All is well, right? I mean, generally speaking, the Persians were more tolerant of the Jews than the other folks who held the Jews captive before them. Esther is now queen. Mordecai is a hero. Esther's secret is safe. What could possibly go wrong, right? Well, pick up in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, what's a good story without a good villain? There's always got to be somebody that you love to hate, and that's where Haman comes in. Haman is an Amalekite. Agag is mentioned specifically. Agag is the king that Saul was supposed to kill in 1 Samuel 15, but kind of just never quite got around to it. And going back even further than that, the Amalekites were notorious for being the first people to attack Israel after God freed them from slavery in Egypt. Needless to say, there is a bit of a rivalry between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And Mordecai refused to honor Haman when he came walking by. It's possible that Mordecai refused to do this because he felt he would be disobeying God's law, committing what he considered to be idolatry, worshiping a man. Maybe. But what seems more likely is that Mordecai simply let the bad blood between Israel and the Amalekites get in the way. You might say that Mordecai is a hero. You could say that Mordecai was just trying to be dedicated to the law of God. But then again, Mordecai had no problem putting Esther in a position where she had to disregard God's law. But either way, Haman is furious about this. So much so that he finally decides to do something about Mordecai and the rest of those Jews that he hates so much. So Haman goes to Xerxes and plays him like a fiddle. He speaks vaguely about some really insignificant people group that doesn't respect the king. A people group that doesn't take the king seriously. Kind of like Vashti didn't take the king seriously. Haman even argues that destroying these people might help replenish Xerxes' depleted bank account. 
Through all this argument, Haman ultimately convinces Xerxes to give him the authority to issue irrevocable decrees in Xerxes' name. And the very first decree is devoted to the destruction of those people he hates so much, the Jewish nation. So Xerxes comes across as easily manipulated, just like his father Darius. If you remember, Darius was the king who was tricked into throwing Daniel into the lion's den, only to regret it later. And Xerxes doesn't even realize that he's approved the death of his own queen as he shares a drink with Haman. So what now? The Jewish people all across Persia, the people that God was supposed to care for, the people that God was supposed to protect and bless, they are now all in grave danger. Their days are numbered. But there's one Jew in Persia who has the king's ear. One Jew who may have just enough power and just enough influence to prevent this genocide from occurring. And that, of course, is Esther. Now, at first, Esther feels helpless. Can you really blame her? She can't just go see the king whenever she wants. Remember what happened to Vashti? After that scandal, Xerxes may be too easily offended by presumptuous queens. But then we see a conversation between Esther and Mordecai, starting in Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Mordecai argues that if Esther does nothing, her family will surely die, and someone else will rise up to deliver them. It's true that if Esther speaks up and does something, she may still die. But Mordecai says that maybe, perhaps, just maybe, this event is the whole reason that you became queen to begin with. Give Mordecai credit, because he appears to show some level of faith here. When he insists that deliverance will rise from another place, is he referring to God? What else would he be talking about? Mordecai seems to believe that God simply will not allow his people to be wiped out. If that's the case, that is an incredible example of faith. And then, of course, give Esther credit, because at the risk of her own life, she agrees to approach the king concerning Haman's decree. That's when she puts the plan in place. Now, thankfully, Xerxes was in a good mood that week, and he agrees to have a meal with Esther. Esther even invites Haman, the man planning to exterminate her people. They eat, they drink, they talk, they laugh. 
And Haman goes home feeling like a million bucks. How many people get to say they just finished dinner with the king and the queen? And on top of that, Haman is invited to another banquet the very next day. But then on the way home, Haman sees Mordecai. And yet again, Mordecai refuses to honor him. And Haman forgets all the joy of the meal and stews over Mordecai's lack of respect. Haman's wife, clearly a very charming woman in her own right, suggests that Haman use his new relationship with the king to have Mordecai executed on a gallows. When we read the word gallows in the book of Esther, we think of being hanged by rope. But in the Persian world, it wasn't being hanged by rope. It was more just like a big stick. It was a pike that you would just kind of get stuck on. That was their version of hanging. But then we pick up in Esther chapter 6 as the story progresses. On that night, the king could not sleep. By the way, if you read the Old Testament very much, any time a king can't sleep, something big's about to happen. That happened in the book of Genesis with Joseph. That happens in the book of Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Any time a king can't sleep, it's usually not just spicy food. Something else is going on. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had been told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, 
before before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Xerxes' sleepless night is the linchpin of the entire story of Esther. And we'll talk about why a little bit later. But what follows is one of the most comically ironic passages in all of Scripture. A total reversal of fortune. Haman walks in to see the king, preparing to ask Xerxes for permission to execute Mordecai. But Haman walks out, leading a parade for Mordecai. Earlier in the book, Mordecai was the one weeping and mourning. But now it's Haman's turn to weep and mourn. And to her credit, Haman's wife can read the writing on the wall. The friends can see what's happening here. They all know that Haman is doomed. But Haman can't stay and talk. Because if you remember, Haman has another banquet to attend. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. But our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king... They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, pay attention to this. Harbona, he's one of the best parts of the whole story. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Harbona hasn't said a single word in this story. He has been completely insignificant. But then he speaks up and says, by the way, hey, king, uh, there's a pike over there. If you're looking for something to do with Haman, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? It makes you wonder what happened between Haman and Harbona that we don't have recorded in scripture. But we continue. The king said to Harbona, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Needless to say, Haman's jig is up. Esther reveals the plan and reveals her identity. 
The king is angry, and in yet another shocking bit of irony, Haman is hanged on the gallows, impaled on the pike that he created for Mordecai. You could say that this is a real-life fulfillment of one of the common themes of Old Testament wisdom literature, that the wicked are punished with their own devices. In Psalm 141, verses 8 through 10, David says this, But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Proverbs 11.5 The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. And then Proverbs 26.27 Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. That's what's happening to Haman. Now as the story ends, Esther remains in her place as queen, Mordecai is elevated to Xerxes' right hand. That old decree about the Jews being destroyed is irrevocable. It can't just be erased. So Xerxes issues another decree, adding the important detail that the Jews will be allowed to defend themselves. And the Jews do just that. Those enemies who still insist on attacking them are destroyed, and Haman's sons end up on the gallows as well. With this event, the Feast of Purim is inaugurated, remembering the Jewish deliverance and relief from the story of Esther. And that feast is still celebrated to this day. Haman cast pure, a.k.a. cast lots, before he approached Xerxes to issue the first decree. Pure were very similar to modern-day dice. They were used back then to try and discern what the gods wanted you to do, In some given situation, you would roll the pure. However, clearly the Jewish people's fate in the book of Esther was not a matter of rolling the dice. Because even though his name isn't mentioned a single time in the book, God is watching over his people. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is that God's people are not at the mercy of luck or chance or some nameless and faceless forces of destiny. Our fate is not just a roll of the dice. And even if it was, look at what Proverbs 16.33 says. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So a few observations as we close. When you read a story like this, it's completely understandable to find yourself asking, Okay, who's the hero? Is the hero Esther with her bravery and wisdom? After all, the book is named for her. Is the hero Mordecai with his integrity and his faith? Many Christians today hold up Esther as the hero, a welcome example of a woman taking charge and saving the day. Traditionally, Jewish people have tended to hold up Mordecai as the hero. The one who got Esther to where she was, her position of queen, and challenged her to be courageous. The truth is that both display different virtues at different points in the story. But the truth is also that neither is truly the hero. The hero is God. After all, remember what we said the linchpin of the story was? 
The linchpin is that night when Xerxes, coincidentally, couldn't sleep. The night before, coincidentally, Haman planned to execute Mordecai. The night that Xerxes, coincidentally, came across the record of Mordecai's good deed years earlier. Who do you think gets the credit for those coincidences? Esther? No. Mordecai? No. God alone gets the credit for that. He's the true hero. He's the main figure in the story, even though his name doesn't appear a single time. Past history, future events, your life and my life are all part of God's story. He's the main actor. We simply have the privilege of playing supporting roles. What we see in this story is that God cares for and protects his people, even when circumstances seem most dire, even when he seems most absent. In German concentration camps, if a Jewish person got caught with a copy of the book of Esther, they would be instantly executed on the spot. Why is that? It's because those Jews in concentration camps found great hope in this story, found great confidence in this story. And those who held them captive were trying to extinguish any hope and any confidence they had left. And I believe that we too can find great hope in this story as Christians, knowing that God will never allow his people to be forever wiped out. The way Jesus puts it is that not even the gates of hell can prevail over God's church. As followers of Jesus, followers of a man who is resurrected from the dead, we know that not even physical death will have the last say over us. And those who seek to destroy the bodies and the lives of God's people in this life cannot touch a single hair on our heads in eternity. Why not? Because we are the beneficiaries of an even greater reversal of fortune at the cross. We are the beneficiaries of an even better story at the cross. A story where one Jew did die, but not just to save his fellow Jews from physical death at the hands of one villain. But instead he died to save sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, from eternal spiritual death. Mordecai said that for such a time as this, Esther became queen. And then in Romans 5, 6, Paul says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is our hope. That is our promise. That is our confidence. The Jews' fate in the book of Esther wasn't subject to luck or chance with the casting of lots or the roll of the dice. And neither is our salvation. It is assured. It is promised. It is guaranteed. Because God watches over his people. Even when it seems like he's nowhere to be found. And we would do well to remember that in times of joy, in times of light, and in times of sorrow and darkness as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible story that I couldn't possibly do justice to. 
I pray that you would let stories like these sink into our bones, sink into our hearts and minds, because they aren't just stories about people a long time ago far away from us. But ultimately, your word is living and active, and your word means something to us right now as believers in your son. And so, Father, I pray that we would look to stories like this to understand who you are and who we are and why our world is the way it is. Father, give us hope, give us confidence, give us joy, give us faith, even when things look dark, even when things seem pointless and lost. Father, help us maintain our confidence in the promises that you've given to us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against your church. Your people will never be annihilated. Because even when we die in this life, we have eternal life to look forward to. And it's all thanks to your son. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.
like we do every week, that our elders will be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to talk to you, happy to answer questions that you might have about the things that we say on Sunday mornings, the things that we do on Sunday mornings, what we teach, what we believe, what we practice, and of course, what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are more than welcome, and we would love to have that conversation with you if you don't know what that means. And then as we close, a couple more things to say. Uh, Number one, we meant to say earlier, I meant to say earlier, that in case you're curious, our church does have a security team, if you've never thought about that before. And actually, well before the events on Friday at Noblesville West Middle School, uh, we've already been talking about ways to improve our church's security. Uh, steps that we can take, measures that we can put into place to make sure that this building, the children in the kids' hallway, the people in the sanctuary are safe and secure on Sunday morning. Uh, of course, we cannot control everything that happens on Sunday morning, but we can take the proper steps and take the proper preparations to be as safe as we possibly can be. And so we do take that seriously at, that, at this church, and we are currently working through ways to take that even more seriously and make that practice even better. And then one more thing that we would say is that if you are still just shaken up by the events of Friday at the middle school, uh, feel free to stay after. Several of our leaders, myself included, we're making a point to stay a little bit later Uh, So if you need to talk, if you need to pray, if you need to vent, if you need to just have someone listen to your frustrations, your fears, your concerns about that event, we can do that. Uh, None of us would claim to be experts on this stuff. None of us would claim to be experts about the stuff that inevitably comes up whenever an event like this happens. But we can listen, we can pray, and we can point you to Scripture. We might not be good for much else, but hopefully we're good for that. So... Let's pray together as we end our service, and we hope you have a great Sunday and a great Memorial Day weekend. Father, again, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. We thank you for this morning. Uh, Father, again, we ask that you be with those affected by what happened on Thursday in Noblesville, Friday, rather, in Noblesville. Uh, Father, be with those who are healing. Uh, Be with those who are hurt. Be with a community that is understandably shaken and hurt and shocked. Uh, And Father, I pray that we as believers uh, would represent you well uh, in a shocked and hurting community, Uh, that people who need to be ministered to, that we would minister to them well, uh, and that we would minister to them in a way that reflects your son, Jesus, and honors you. 
And Father, be with us as we leave this weekend. Some of us will be going to family get-togethers and parties and race events. Uh, Father, again, I ask that you would keep us all safe. Thank you for those people who Memorial Day weekend is really all about. People who bravely and sacrificially have given their lives for us uh, and for our country and for our freedom to worship you. Uh, Father, may we honor them appropriately. And again, be with us as we go to all the places you send us. May we shine your light everywhere we touch. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.